Hey, this is Kevin Weatherby at Save the Cowboy. I want you to tow that stirrup, throw a leg over the candle, take a deep seat, and pull your hat down tight. I ain't gonna tolerate no whining or griping, so let's all strike a long trot down that narrow trail and learn how to ride with God. Come on! What you waiting on? Let's go. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. So I got done with uh, a series a couple, well, last week, and it was a series called Grown Ups. And um, it was going from a childlike faith to a grown up salvation. And one of the things that I had actually uh, studied in preparation for that sermon series was the great story of Balaam and the donkey. Now, you know, if, if you've been to church a little bit, you've heard that, you know, Balaam and the donkey story and everything like that. This was one of the things when I was coming up with the series that I researched. And the further I researched who Balaam was, I came across something that I had never heard before. I had never linked together. And today, I hope you will have a better understanding of just how precious a gift we were given when we celebrate the birth of the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that the one that all authority on heaven and in earth or in heaven and on earth has been given. So if you don't know who Balaam is, let me set the, let me set the stage for you, okay? Balaam is a prophet of God, but there's something unique about Balaam. He's not an Israelite. He, he, he's not with, with the Israelites. They are camped at a place called something. I don't remember. They're camped at Shimei or Semet or something. I, I don't remember. The Israelites are fixing to cross the River Jordan and uh, take the promised land. Moses has probably already passed away. And this is around 1400 BC, okay? And I think it's important as I grow in the grace and knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I have learned that things that I didn't think were important before, somehow, if it's in the Bible, it's important. You just gotta know where to stick it, right? And so 1400 BC is about the time the Israelites crossed over the River Jordan into the Promised Land. Now, to put that into perspective, uh, about 1400 years later, Jesus would be born, right? So, and if you want another time frame, King David serves as King of Israel around 1000 BC. Okay, so you've got crossing over to the River Jordan in 1400. You've got David reigning at 1000 and then Jesus being born about the time Everybody wants to change it to before common era, and that's dumb. So uh, BCE, I, I think, it, well, I'm still gonna say before Christ and after death. So anyway, there's the time frame. So Balaam is a prophet of God, of Yahweh, right? Of, of our God, he's a prophet of it. The people there though call him a soothsayer, right? A soothsayer. and. The king of the Moabites, a guy named Balak, 
has asked Balaam, he sent a messenger to Balaam because in Balak's territory is where the Israelites are camped, okay? So the Israelites are camped there. He does not want them camped on his spot. And so he goes to a soothsayer, Balak goes to Balaam and says, will you curse Israel for me so that even if the curse doesn't take a hold of everybody, it will weaken them enough that I can go in and destroy them. Balaam gives Balak this warning. I can only say what God tells me to say. I, I just can't make stuff up like you're asking me to. And so he says, I'm not going because you're wanting a, you want me to curse God's people and I can only do what God tells me to. So this ain't going to work out right. Well, God tells Balaam not to go, and Balak keeps sending everything, blah, blah, blah. And finally, Balaam gets tired of all of this, and he decides to go against the wishes of God and go talk to Balak or Balak or however you say his name. Go talk to him and see what's up. So on the way is the story of Balaam and the donkey. Right? Everybody's probably heard it. Balaam is riding the same donkey that he's had since he was a little kid because those things lived to be like 400, 500 years old. And so he's riding his donkey along and suddenly the donkey spooks and just flat out runs off. Now, I've been horseback most of my life and I never thought a bucket list item might be on a little donkey running away with me. That kind of sounds fun. Okay, but to, to Balaam, it was not fun, right? So he whips the donkey and gets it back on the road and finally it's going along and all of a sudden the donkey turns and, and gets next to a wall and crushes Balaam's foot against, you know, the wall and everything. So he beats the donkey again and then, uh, and then finally the third time, just walking along and suddenly the, the donkey just lays down, won't get up. Right? But then the angel of the Lord, see, what was happening was God was trying to keep Balaam from going to see Balak, right? So he put the angel of the Lord in front of the donkey. The donkey could see the angel of the Lord, Balaam couldn't, right? And so what God tells Balaam later is that if your donkey wouldn't have run off, turned back, crushed your foot, or laid down, you'd have died because when you got close to the angel, he was going to kill you with his sword. And so in this moment, something amazing happens. God allows the donkey to speak. The donkey inquires as to why he's getting beaten, and then Balaam was allowed to see the angel. And listen, here's something that you got to know. None of us really rehearse how to apologize to a donkey. Okay, so this is kind of, this is uncharted territory. We've got a prophet that's not from Israel, and now we've got a donkey that needs an apology. Okay, and in Numbers chapter 22, verse 30, it talks about this. And this is what the donkey said, okay? But I am, but I am the same donkey you have ridden all your life, the donkey answered. Have I ever done anything like this before? And Balaam admittedly answered, no, you have not. 
Man, is there anything that we can learn from that? Well, I, I think one of the things that we can learn from that is that if somebody seems to be acting in a way that is totally, totally opposite of who they, you know, may seem to be or something like that, man, maybe we need to take this kind of advice and think maybe there's something going on that I don't know about. Instead of beating people for acting like they, you know, in a different way or something, we might just pause and say, what's going on here? What are you seeing? What are you feeling? What are you experiencing right now that is making you act like this? Because it's totally foreign to whatever has been going on. And I think that that is a valuable lesson that we can learn. But then God allows Balaam to go to continue on and to see the king of the Moabites. So the first thing that happens is Balak takes Balaam to a high point uh, overlooking the Jordan River. And I, I wish I had an illustration for y'all to see, but if you, if you can kind of picture the Jordan River comes from Mount Hermon through the Sea of Galilee down and into the Dead Sea, okay? Now, why does it called the Dead Sea? Because the Dead Sea doesn't have an outlet. And so everything just stagnates there and it's dead, right? But, but the Sea of Galilee is fresh, everything. And so you have Jericho on the west side and you've got mountains and then what is called the Jordan Valley. And it's pretty wide. It's like 30, well, maybe not 30 miles. It's not that, but it, it's, it's a wide valley and you can see it on Google Earth and everything. And the Israelites are up next to the westernmost mountains as you come down out of them. Now, if you can understand topography, and I think us in Colorado can understand this a little more than maybe us Texans could, but all of the rivers flow to the, you know, kind of go towards the Jordan River. So you follow the rivers through the mountains. And so where they camped, they had followed the river. They took the same route through there. You remember when Jacob ran, uh, uh, wrestles with the angel of the Lord at Peniel, they took that same road that Jacob would have taken. And so they get there and uh, there's like three prominent points, the middle one being Mount Nebo, Nebo, where Moses was allowed to see the promised land, but not go in. That was the second place. Balak's going to take Balaam to three different, so they're gonna walk out to the edge of the mountain, but the problem is, is that he takes him to the furthest one away, and when Balaam looks, some of these fingers of the mountains, you can't see all of the Israelites where they are camped with the tabernacle and everything. And so, Balak tells Balaam, hey man, you need to do what you came to do. And so Balak, or Balaam, <laughs> the, the bees are getting to me today, wow. And so uh, anyway, Balaam, our prophet, goes to do what he was asked to do, but instead of curses coming out of his mouth, a blessing on the Israelites comes out. And here's a small snippet of what really ticks the king of Moab off. It's found in Numbers 23, verse 10. Who can count Jacob's descendants as numerous as dust? Who can count even a fourth of Israel's people. Now, the reason he says that right there is because he can only see a fourth of the people. Now, the cool part about the tabernacle and the Israelites is that the tabernacle that held the Ark of the Covenant was in it, and then there was a tent, right? And then the, the camps were set in a certain way surrounding it with the tribes of Israel. And because of the numbers, 
They're on four sides. One side was longer, and guess what it looked like from the air? A cross. When they, when they settled down for a war camp and set up everything like God says, the tribes and the, the whole deal made a cross out of everything. So Balaam can only see a fourth of them. But he says right here, he says, who can count Jacob's descendants as numerous as dust? Who can count even a fourth of Israel's people? Then they go to the next overlook, which is Mount Nebo, where Moses died. This is where uh, the archangel Michael and Lucifer himself in the book of Jude in the New Testament, this is the mountain where they they fight over the body of Moses. And I don't really understand that. And maybe you do. I've got some theories on that. But anyway, so that's where they are. And he looks out and he still can't really see anybody, right? But I think we need to stop right here and answer a question. What in the heck does this have to do with Christmas? Well, we're fixing to get there. We're fixing to get there. So finally, the king of Moab gets mad and says he isn't paying Balaam anything because at each of these lookouts, instead of a curse, comes out a blessing. And you can read those in, in Numbers chapter 23, right? You can read all these blessings and everything. So on the third and final overlook, another blessing comes out and the king of Moab says, you know what? I'm not paying you anything. I didn't bring you out here to bless Israel. I brought you out here to curse Israel. And so he's storming off and God gives Balaam one more thing to say. And now we're getting close to Christmas. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, it says this. This is in the New Living Translation. I see him. This is Balaam talking. I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him. Lost my place. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. 1400 years before the birth of Christ, Balaam, a prophet of God that was not an Israelite, he was not with them in Egypt. Uh, a lot of, some scholars say he was uh, from Aram, I think, A-R-A-M. And so anyway, what you have here is in the ancient world in 1400 BC, you can go watch National Geographic, you can watch anything on the Mesopotamian, on the Babylonian stuff with all the hieroglyphics and everything. Well, there's two things that have never changed in all of the ancient world. When you are doing a hieroglyphics or a painting or whatever, you know, doing, if there is a star, with a person, it signifies that that person is a God, okay? It, it doesn't matter if you're looking at Babylonian stuff, Egyptian stuff, uh, Greek stuff. If there's something and there's a person and there's a star beside it, it always means that he is a God. The second thing, though, is this, that if that person, or if a person is ever holding 
something about this long called a scepter, it is saying that he is a king, right? So a king always holds a scepter and a star always says that whoever that person is, is a God. Now, let me read Balaam's part of his deal. I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. Now, do you understand why it says a star will rise from Jacob? Is because Jacob's name, when he fought with the angel of the Lord that Balaam had just seen, that caused his donkey to talk, this is the same angel of the Lord that Jacob wrestled with at Peniel, which is not very far, like a couple of miles, I think, from where Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And on that day, the Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel. Okay, so I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future, a star will rise from Jacob or Israel. A scepter will emerge from Israel. Okay, now let me read you another verse that will connect from Balaam, a donkey, to Christmas. It's found in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. And it says this, where is the newborn king of the Jews. This is the uh, magi talking, right? Where is the king? Where's the one that holds the scepter, right? Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star rise and we have come to worship him. You don't worship kings, you give deference and obedience to kings, but you don't worship king. But for the first time in human history, a king was born that was also not a God, the God. And 1,400 years before that, Balaam had said, uh, I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future, a star will rise from Jacob, a scepter will emerge from uh, Israel. Now, here's an interesting Bible fact for your Christmas morning. There's two accounts of Jesus' birth in the four Gospels. The four Gospels are called Gospels because they're the story of Jesus' life, but only two, Matthew and Luke, record the birth of Jesus. Here's another interesting Bible fact. If you read the account in Matthew, it mentions magi, but not shepherds. Not one time does it mention a shepherd being there. But you go to Luke's account, and it's all shepherds and no magi. So the whole Christmas story is the combining of those two accounts in the New Testament. Oh, my pages are out of order. Y'all was fixing to get way ahead. Now, I said only two of the four Gospels mention the birth of Jesus, but did you know there's another account of it in the New Testament? There's another account of the birth of Jesus in the New Testament. I call it the rated R version of the birth of Jesus. About 10 years ago, I actually did a whole Christmas sermon on this 
but it's R-rated because of the violence, the spiritual beings engaged in a war in heaven, and a fantastic dragon that is cast down to the earth to wreak havoc on its inhabitants. Let me read you the Christmas story, the third account of the Christmas story, and it's found somewhere that you might not ever go look for the Christmas story. Turn with me to Revelations chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to read you a portion of Revelation chapter 12, and this will be in the simplified cowboy version, which is by, by far probably one of the best books ever written. <laughs> then an amazing sight was seen in the sky. A lady with a dress like the sun was standing on top of the moon with a crown of 12 stars. She cried out with the pain of childbirth as her time was near. Another amazing sight appeared in the sky. A monstrous red dragon took flight. It had seven heads and ten Watusi horns. Each head wore its own crown. The dragon's tail swept one-third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. It stood in front of the woman with saliva falling out of its mouth, waiting to devour her child the second it was born. The lady gave birth to a king. This king would rule forever with an iron rod. Before the dragon could devour the boy, he was taken quickly to the throne of God. The lady was secreted away to a place in the desert that God had prepared for her. She will stay there and be guarded for 1,260 days. Now, if you're not real sure what all that means, when Jesus was born, the Magi went to Herod, the king of the Jews in Jerusalem and says, where's the new king born? Well, Herod wants to be king. He don't want a new king. So basically, after he said, you know, I've been looking for the same thing. I have. If you find him, you tell me where he is. Right? And then he turns to his officials and says, kill every child in Israel under the age of two. And so God takes Jesus, Mary, and Joseph to Egypt until Herod dies, which coincidentally was 1,260 days after that, right? Another prophecy. So starting in verse seven, then war broke out in heaven. The boss angel, Michael, along with his angels, battled against the dragon and its angels. The dragon was defeated and it was kicked out of heaven with the other angels who had fought at its side. The huge dragon was thrown out. You know the dragon as that ancient snake, the devil or Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to earth and all his angels fell with him. Then a booming voice from heaven said, salvation and power has come. God has shown his power as king and the authority of his Messiah. The accuser of man has been cast down out of heaven. The battle was won by the power of the blood of the lamb and the power of the good news the cowboys taught. And lastly, they didn't pause while looking death in the face. They were willing to die for the truth heaven can rejoice now that the dragon is no longer there. But that cannot be said for the earth and sea, for the devil is now with you, and he is enraged at his defeat. He knows there is little time left for him to destroy man. See, we talked about how Balaam, 1400 years before Christ was even born, announced that he would be a god and a king. Then we have Magi, 
coming from the east where that prophecy was made, coming to Jerusalem, because that's the capital. Kings live in capitals and ask Herod, where is this king? And he says, I don't know, I'm looking for him too. But then even in Revelation, we see. Now, if you go YouTube this, if you go looking for this, you'll find people that disagree with me. But see, you wanna know why there's no demons in the Old Testament? Because the demons hadn't come yet. At when Jesus was born, the devil knew that changes were gonna take place and it wasn't gonna be good for him. So he came to try to destroy Jesus. And then while uh, Satan is trying to destroy Jesus, Michael, the archangel comes down and there's this whole spiritual battle going on behind your cute little nativity scene. So, you know, if you really want your nativity scene to be authentic, you know, Jesus in the manger and there's donkeys and shepherds and wise men and a big freaking dragon trying to eat it all, right? But that's what happened. This is a behind the scenes. While we just talk about, you know, little lovey, cuddly Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, you know, and, and, uh, and people are praying to dear Lord, sweet baby Jesus, right? <laughs> There's been about nine people that saw that movie. <laughs> Dear sweet baby Jesus, right? That's what we all picture. But there's something amazing going on behind the scenes. And it even crosses over to the death of Jesus as recorded in Psalm 22 as a prophecy. It says, I, I, something about I hang here all of my joints are out of place. My heart has turned to water and the bulls of Bashan surround me like rabid animals trying to devour me. Now, if you wanna know what bulls of Bashan is, Bashan is where Caesarea Philippi was. Those of us that have been to Israel all say it's the most evil place in the entire world because there's a cave there to the god Pan and it, there's like a hole that has water in it and you throw something in there and it never returns. They used to sacrifice children in that hole. That is the region of Bashan, and right there at that place was the capital of it. So that psalm is referring to Jesus' crucifixion as the bulls of Bashan. It's a spiritual thing. All these demons and, and spiritual forces and authorities were at the cross waiting for Jesus to die, right? So what does all of this mean? What does it mean, right? It means that before the Israelites entered the promised land in 1406 BC, their Messiah was going to change things and it was foreseen. The gospels take about, talk about how the birth of Jesus changed everything. No longer after the birth of Jesus and then the death of Jesus, the arrival, no longer are we bound by law. We don't have to make animal sacrifices. He changed everything. Even a book mainly involved with future events, Revelation tells the behind the scenes supernatural events that took place when Jesus changed everything. From 1406 BC to 2023 AD, Jesus has been changing things, not just in our world, but in the spiritual one as well. And listen, If he can change all of that, I wonder what he could do with you. 
I wonder what he could do with you. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. Father, we're fixing to get ready to, to baptize, to where we will witness a change from somebody that goes from their sinful nature and their pride and jealousy and everything like that, and then they are raised to life, what the Bible calls a new creation created in Christ Jesus. God, we're fixing to witness that change, but it shouldn't just be for the people getting baptized. It should be for all of us on this Christmas uh, Eve. When, yes, Jesus was not born on December 25th. It's just when we celebrate it, and it's a magical time, and God, let us keep our focus on you from what you did from Scripture all throughout. And God, we ask a blessing on those that are about to be baptized and those that are making the decision to do so as well. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.